I wanted, uh, before I begin the talk this evening, to introduce Diane Small-Hillier, who's um, going to be one of the managers for the next period of time, along with Beth, uh, Beth Baker, who's not here tonight. But um, welcome you, and thank you in advance. <laughs> so she'll be looking after us. I think most of us have uh, heard in, at some point and may have some uh, memory of or familiarity with uh, the story of the, the Buddha's life or we'd say the Buddha to be, the Prince Siddhartha and his story of growing up in, in a, a kind of palace life. A lot of, uh, a lot of ease there. And in that story, it's... Uh, and kind of the legendary version of it, it said that he was visited by uh, what are called the four heavenly messengers. And in his own words, in the suttas, at one point he described them as, as he said it was four thoughts that came to him at one point that he had. And he said that he, he reflected on the fact that he was um, subject to aging, to becoming ill at some point, eventually to dying. And he said that when he brought these, these to mind, which he'd been uh, kind of shielded from these, these truths, that when these came to his mind, whether we see it as the story of the, the, the heavenly messengers and his, his trips out, out of the palace and seeing uh, these, these messengers of an aging person, a sick person, a corpse, and a renunciate. But he said that... Uh, in, in seeing this and reflecting on these, that the vanities of youth, health, and life left him. In his own words, how he described that. So he had this realization, which hadn't been there, that he wasn't going to live forever in good health. And that wasn't the trajectory of, of the life there. And these are the words he said after... Um, after having this realization, after this striking him in a deep way, he said, Why then do I, being myself subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement, seek that which is also subject to this? Suppose I sought after the unborn, unaging, unailing, deathless, sorrowless, the undefiled supreme surcease of bondage, Nibbana. So this, these kind of what we could call fundamental existential questions that came to mind. What's the point of life? What's it all about if I'm just going to grow old, be subject to illness at times, and eventually die? You know, what's the point? And bringing these, these coming into his mind and heart are what uh, propelled him on his quest for... Uh, for finding a greater kind of understanding. He said, why, why would I seek that which is subject to this also? Let me see if there's something more, something beyond this, more to life than this. Now, most of us don't really like to think about aging, illness, death, being parted from what we hold dear. 
We don't like to think about it that much. And I think there's strong conditioning in a lot of, uh, a lot of our minds and hearts to avoid these subjects. You know, we see, well, life is happening now. I'll deal with those things at some later point down the road, somewhere down, hopefully down at the end of a very long road. You know, not a, not a short one. I'll deal with it later when, it's, when the time is there. And we have this glorification of youth in, in the culture, youth and youthfulness. You know, it's, youth is placed on a pedestal. And, and there's this, along with that, there's this, this sense that, you know, we're not supposed to get old. And there's this industry that caters to promoting this idea as though, kind of this cult of youth as though aging as though it were somehow evidence of bad taste <laughs> or of personal failure. You know, that, that if we somehow, you know, had our act together, it wouldn't happen. And there's all these, all these creams and lotions and potions that are offered that are, they promise, you know, eternal youth. If you look at... <laughs> Look at the wording of the advertising. It's, that's what's on offer there. And, you know, all the kinds of surgeries and all the things one can do to try to, to keep this youthful appearance, keep the body looking youthful at least. And, and there's this energy trying to convince us that, that we don't have to grow old, that actually this is somehow an option. It's an optional thing. As though... You know, this natural process is something we might be able to avoid somehow. And all these things we can do, you know, they don't actually work that well or not for very long, you know. And and it's not that we shouldn't do our best to take care of ourselves and there's nothing wrong with trying to look our best. That's not the point. You know, and and it, it makes sense to do what we can to stay healthy. And good health is such a blessing and anyone who has struggled with their health knows this very well. It's a great blessing to have good health. But to live as though aging and illness and this natural progression of life is somehow avoidable shows this impressive capacity for denial, which, you know, our culture has has honed that to a high level denial on various levels you know that's a lot of a lot of things are based on that and so then if growing old is evidence of personal failure then dying is the ultimate example of this <laughs> you know it's it's the ultimate in really bad taste and and we we hide it away we hide it out of sight we don't want to look at it we in some cases, we'll, we'll clean the bodies up in these funeral parlors and, so that they just look like they're taking a nap. <laughs> you know, making them look at, as attractive as possible. And we, we treat death like, yeah, like a mistake or, or like a disease that there might be a cure for. One of my friends recently gave me a, a magazine, Time magazine, it's a couple years old, and the cover... Big letters, the whole cover was, was just type, very large letters. Can Google solve death? 
This is the question that was posed there. And of course, you know, Google can do everything else. I mean, you know, we, we consult Aj on Google when we're looking for uh, <laughs> references in Dharma talks. <laughs> you know. But, you know, this was a serious question. Can Google solve death? You know, it can do everything else. So we have this, we treat it in this way that when we talk, when I say it out loud, it just sounds ridiculous, but it's out there. It's in the, in the, in the minds of, of, a lot of a lot of us. And this, there's a fear of death that is perhaps subtle at times, but it's very pervasive. It arises in our minds and hearts, and we do our best to, to not, uh, not go there, not bring it into our minds and hearts, not bring it into consciousness. And we do all kinds of things. We focus our energy outward a lot of the time, acquiring things, possessions, and experiences, and different kinds of knowledge. And, and we, we focus on this life of getting and having and acquiring things. And all of the stuff that we, we do to define ourselves and reinforce a certain sense of who we are. And this can, can keep these, uh, these uh, truths out of our minds and hearts to some extent for, for a while. can shield us from that. But, you know, if we want to look at what's true and real, well, then aging, sickness, and death, that's, that's the natural progression. That's, that's the, the trajectory of a life. goes in that way. It's natural, inevitable part of life, and it's true for everyone. It was true for the Buddha. This is the, uh, the Jara Sutta. Jara means aging or old age. I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying near Savati in the eastern monastery at the palace of Migara's mother. Now on that occasion, the Blessed One, on emerging from seclusion in the late afternoon, sat warming his back in the western sun. And the Venerable Ananda that went to the Blessed One and on arrival, having bowed down to the Blessed One, began to massage the Blessed One's limbs with his hand. And he said, It's amazing, Lord. It's astounding how the Blessed One's complexion is no longer so clear and bright. His limbs are flabby and wrinkled. His back bent forward. There's a discernible change in his faculties, in the faculty of the eye, the faculty of the ear, of the nose, of the tongue, and of the body. That's the way it is, Ananda. <laughs> when young, one is subject to aging. When healthy, subject to illness. When alive, subject to death. The complexion is no longer so clear and bright. The limbs are flabby and wrinkled. The back bent forward. And there is a discernible change to the faculties. Faculty of the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, and the body. Uh, this, I love this sutta. It's so, <laughs> the Buddha is so human, you know. Ananda, they're getting old. They come out. Ananda is giving him a back rub. His cousin and attendant and dear, dear friend, dearly beloved being, they were dear to one another. Blessed one, dude, what happened? We got old. <laughs> And when death finally comes for all of us, it's going to take all of our acquisitions, everything we've, 
managed to get, acquire. It's going to take whatever sense of self we've managed to put together. And in a, in a very real sense, death is not waiting down at the end of the road. It's walking along with us. It's our constant companion in a life. This is a quotation, uh, an excerpt uh, from uh, one of my favorite books, especially when I was in high school, The Teachings of Don Juan by Carlos Castaneda. It was my Bible at that time. And I've condensed this slightly from the, uh, the original. Death is our eternal companion. It is always to our left at an arm's length. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. The issue of our death is never pressed far enough. Death is the only wise advisor that we have. Your death will tell you that nothing really matters outside of its touch. One of us here has to change and change fast. One of us here has to learn that death is the hunter and that it is always to one's left. One of us here has to ask death's advice and drop the cursed pettiness that belongs to those that live their lives, at, lives as if death will never tap them. Think of your death now. It is at an arm's length. It may tap you at any moment. So really, you have no time for crappy thoughts and moods. <laughs> None of us have time for that. And those are strong words. It may be hard to, they may hit, they may land a little, a little hard. They're very strong words. But they point to something really true and important. You know, we actually have no idea how much longer we'll be alive. Nothing is guaranteed, not even the next breath. One of the fundamental things that the Buddha taught is that it is all of our attachments, all that we cling to, identify with, perhaps especially our sense of self that is the cause of suffering in our lives. And if we live with the understanding that death will eventually part us from all of this, from everything, everything we hold on to, including any sense of self we may have put together, we might be able to start letting go of things now. And this could save us from a lot of suffering in the future, down the road. And there's five subjects that the Buddha recommended that one ref frequently reflect on. This is from a, a discourse in the Anguttara Nikaya. He said, there are five facts, O bhikkhus, O practitioners. There are five facts which ought to be often contemplated upon by everyone, whether woman or man, householder, or one gone forth as a nun or a monk. What five? I am subject to aging. I have not gone beyond aging. I am subject to illness. I have not gone beyond illness. I am subject to death. I have not gone beyond death. I will grow different. 
separated and be parted from all that is dear and beloved to me. I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, and live dependent on my actions. Whatever actions I do, for good or for ill, to that I will fall heir. Well, these first uh, three of these bear, uh, well, the three first four really have a very direct relationship to these heavenly messengers that the Buddha, Buddha saw, messengers of uh, aging, illness, death, and being parted from what one holds dear. And in, in his case, seeing the renunciate who's left go, let go of so much, symbolizing this uh, being parted from one's uh, possessions and things that one holds dear. And then the fifth one, the last one, is a reflection on uh, the teaching, the law of kamma. Karma. That we are the heir to our actions. That actions uh, born of intention bear fruit according to their nature. Now, this might not strike us all as a really cheery list of things to think about and and we might not have noticed our heart leaping up just now when I read that. The thought of, you know, reflecting on these frequently as the Buddha suggested. Then we know we're going to age and probably have times of illness and eventually die. We know you can't take it with you. We will be parted from things. But it may come into our minds, well, why would we dwell on these, these dreary subjects? You know, why, why do that? Shouldn't we focus on enjoying life? Why bring these things to mind? They hit close to home, don't they? You know, we may think, life's hard enough. I'm not going to dwell on morbid kinds of thoughts. And of course, there are times when these contemplations are not appropriate. For any one of us, there may be a time when it's not skillful to bring them to mind. Certain circumstances in our lives may indicate that this is not a good thing to do. It's not always appropriate, of course. But if we hold them carefully, bring them to our mind and heart in a skillful way, in a timely way, they can be a very powerful tool in our meditation practice, in our, in our spiritual life, in a, in a broader sense of that. You know, if we're young, we might fear that that these kinds of reflections will rob us of something, of some sense of, of possibility, all that the future might hold for us can come into the mind. And you know, the point of these contemplations is not to make us feel bad or create some sense of resignation or powerlessness in the face of the inevitable. And although I think we may fear, especially if this is a new, uh, new thing for us to hear this suggestion that we reflect in this way, may fear that it, it could be depressing, I think we often find when we actually undertake this contemplation that the opposite is true, that it's not at all depressing, that it's actually uh, liberating and can bring joy and ease into the mind and heart if we practice with it carefully. Because if we're living with an often unacknowledged fear of aging, of illness, of death, of infirmity, then that 
that fear can rob us of a lot of vitality. And Brian read uh, that beautiful poem uh, in one of his earlier talks where we'll find we're surviving but not actually living, trying to survive. And we can spend a lot of time and energy avoiding, repressing, denying these fears and losing out on a lot of what life has to offer. But by actually bringing them to the surface of our consciousness, coming face to face with them, we can start to undo some of the conditioning that's there. We can see that uh, these fears that arise, that they're impermanent, that they're conditioned, that they're empty of any lasting essence. And, and as we bring them to the surface of our awareness and really start to feel into what this is in our lives, they start to uh, unbind, they start to fall away, let go, and they, they no longer weigh on the mind and heart. And there's a lightness and ease that can come. It can actually open us into a, a new way of living. It can really inform our lives in a profound way. This is a quotation from a Thai teacher named Ajahn Lee Damodaro. He said, aging, illness, and death are treasures for those who understand them. They're noble truths, noble treasures. If they were people, I'd bow down to them every day. That's a pretty impressive and different kind of attitude, seeing these uh, reflections as noble truths and noble treasures. Something that one might bow to. And part of the power of these reflections is, they, is that they allow us to take a stand on reality. We stand on the truth of things. The way things really are. And they really can awaken also in us, I think, a sense of the preciousness of life. I know many, many of us have noticed as we've gotten older that the passage of time, our perception of that seems, it seems to have sped up. That's certainly uh, been the case for me. You know, years just seem, when I, I remember when I was a kid in summer vacation, it just seemed like it lasted forever. It was so long. I don't know if kids get those long summer vacations. We had almost three months and it just seemed like, oh, it's eternity, but now a year goes by like this. It just seems to go by so quickly. I mean, what happened to the last two weeks? Being here, it's, it's gone. There are moments in there where it seemed like it was never going to end. <laughs> you know, that perception is not fixed, as I've said. And a single period of meditation can just ring the bell. Oh, ring the, you know, it's, we're just dying for it to be over. <laughs> but then the last two weeks, it's just gone. And a year of life seems to vanish in an instant. It seems so fleeting sometimes. This is from a, a Blackfoot warrior orator named Crowfoot. A little while and I will be gone from among you when I cannot tell. 
from nowhere we came into nowhere we go. What is life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the breath of a buffalo in the wintertime. It is the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. And these kinds of images and reflections, if we open to them and really start to touch our own mortality in a real way, in a direct way, and connect with the fragility, the beauty and fragility and brevity of life, not in a morbid way, but in a way where we, there's a deep appreciation of the time that we have, of the beauty of life, and we, it, I think it can inform our, our, our understanding in the way that we want to make the best use of our time. And we can look at our life from this perspective of asking the question, what's worth doing? What, what do I really feel is worth doing with my time? How am I spending my time? There's a, uh, a practice that I've, I've heard of, and I think it's based on a book, and some of you quite likely know the, this uh, practice and book. It's called One Year to Live. And one undertakes um, a way of uh, holding one's life as though one knew I had just one year to live. And I remember asking myself this question many, many years ago, many times not, not based on, on this book because I haven't studied it. But I would ask myself, what would I do? Sometimes I, I, f- I almost wished it was true. I would wish it was true, part of me. So I thought it would really um, help me put things in perspective, help me overcome a certain uh, laziness that I see in my mind and heart. And um, you know, Sometimes when I would ask that question, I'd say, oh, it looks pretty good. I'm not sure I'd need to change too much, but other times I'd, Say, better look, what, you're, what are you doing? How are you spending your time? I'd really have to look at that. So we might bring one or more of these contemplations to mind on a regular basis. Some people reflect on them daily. I'm going to speak a little bit uh, in detail about uh, the first one, I am subject to aging. Take this one, for example. I am subject to aging. I have not gone beyond aging. As I've been saying, we all know that we're getting older intellectually. You know, that's, none of us would say that wasn't true. But what if we really bring this into the mind and heart and sit with it? Are we willing to, to soak in that and let it in into our bones, into our cells, you could say. And of course, connecting with this uh, puts us directly in touch with uh, the truth of impermanence. It's a way we can touch into that, through that. And we can be fine with the idea of contemplating impermanence in, in abstract ways. All things are impermanent. It's a good Buddhist thing to say, like a stance we might take, or a something we might adopt, be able to say that, anicca, it's all impermanent. You know, it's, it's around in the language and, and we see it in the world around us and we love it in nature, it's so beautiful. I like to contemplate it there. 
all those changes that naturally come. But it's not so easy when it comes to, to ourselves. We take ourselves out of nature. shouldn't be happening there. You know, we see the body aging, changing, this inevitable movement. You know, look in the mirror, there's gray hairs that start coming in. In my case, my daily expanding forehead. <laughs> hair thinning and you know, we don't like to see it. I remember when some, it's quite a few years ago now, going, you know, going to the barber shop is always a mixed thing. You know, because they hand you that mirror. There's one behind you and they hand you one here. How does he, how, what do you think? How's it look? And of course, you cannot avoid seeing the back of your head. <laughs> and in my case, you know, it's, it's not, it's getting a little thin. <laughs> you know, and I can't tell you for how long I would see that and I'd say, oh, it's just a cowlick. <laughs> it's always kind of been that way. You know, just this deny, I didn't want to see that thinning patch back there. <laughs> deny that it's even going on at all. We want to exempt ourselves from from the truth of change in these ways. You know, remembering the t- first times uh, someone calling me sir in a store or restaurant. One of my uh, friends, my friend Ivy, used to say she'd go somewhere and she'd come back and say, I just got mammed. <laughs> you know, she was, went somewhere and was, someone said ma'am, you know, it was getting mammed and I uh, you know, didn't like it. I... Uh, I may have mentioned before, I used to live in San Francisco and had worked there and had a, at one point a business and I was, <coughs> there were six of us. So I was visiting, years after we closed that down, I was visiting one of my former business partners who'd uh, gotten married and uh, had young twin uh, daughters who I'd seen when they were little, you know, just babies. And then uh, I was seeing them after two or three years, and so they were you know, kind of preschool age at this time, four or five. And uh, I, you know, I went, drove over to the house and parked, and I went up and knocked on the door, and the curtain went aside, and these little faces looking out at me, and then I hear this voice, Mom, there's an old man at the door. <laughs> and you know, I just did not like that. It was, it was really surpri- it was really amazing to me how that landed. You know, it was just a little girl, and anybody who's, you know, probably older than about 15 is pretty old, but, Mom, there's an old man at the door. <laughs> Whoa, no! <laughs> it was really interesting to see that that didn't, la- that didn't land very well. Or, you know, when people start offering to help, you out, help me out of the store with my groceries. No, thank you. I'll manage quite, quite fine. <laughs> you know, I just, I don't like, it's just so funny. <laughs> you know, and so the self-image starts to suffer, right? You know, and I try to take care of myself. I, I'm a little random about it, but I try to exercise. <laughs> I, I like to ride my bike, and there are times when I'm really good, and, you know, I kind of watch my diet. And so I have decided... I'm fine, I'm okay with being a middle-aged man. This is an undeniable thing. But, but I have to get to be kind of a, a youthful middle-aged man. Right? So that's, that's the image I've decided I'm, I'm down with that. <laughs> I can be you know, kind of a 
kind of a peppy, <laughs> kind of a kind of a cool, youthful middle-aged man, <laughs> you know. And these self-images they're inherently problematic because they they just require ongoing maintenance because <laughs> they get out of date easily and quickly, you know. And we have to do a lot of work to keep them shored up. And we can even spend a lot of time and money at that, keeping them intact. And then something happens and they get messed with or shattered. You know, someone offers their seat on the bus. <laughs> you know, I'm supposed to be doing that for someone else. Someone's not supposed to be offering it to me, but they, it's happening. <laughs> you know, and, and so then the self-image is out of date. So then we adjust it. Usually that's the strategy. It's like me at a certain point adjusting to uh, my decision. I, I'm, I'm cool with being middle-aged now, as long as it's my version of that. But, you know, this isn't, of course, you know, just getting really good at, at fixing our self-image isn't the point, right? I mean, our practice is about going beyond these images something beyond that, beyond all images, and to some kind of truth that's beyond these ideas and concepts and things that we hold in this way. And you know, it's, it's not to say that there's not some wisdom and, um, you know, some really, uh, it's wise to think about and perhaps to plan for our old age. Uh, there may be some value to worries and fears that can come in this regard. It's, that's not foolish. But fear and suffering are not necessarily an inevitable part of that. They don't have to be part of that equation. So maybe we can start to come to uh, some relationship uh, workable with the inevitable aging of the body in this contemplation. I am subject to aging. I've not gone beyond that. Maybe, okay, I can have the body age, but what about the mind? Our minds are subject to aging as well, aren't they? You know, we can see, oh, well, you know, I've got my practice and, and that will, will be there for me as the body ages and uh, starts to have trouble, perhaps gets sick at times, heading in this, excuse me, trajectory of, of heading towards the end of the life eventually. As long as there's alertness, attentiveness, mindfulness there. I'll be okay. But what if, uh, what if the mind stops functioning? What if it doesn't function so well? What if, if that s- starts to fall away? I'm going to turn 60 this year. A few months from now, I'll be 60. And not just in the last few months, but for some time now, I'm noticing my memory, which I've always prided myself on having this great memory, it's, it's diminished. <laughs> if I don't write it down, forget it. It's not going to stay, some things at least. This is a poem uh, by Billy Collins called Forgetfulness. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you have never read, never even heard of, <laughs> as if one by one the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain, to a little fishing village where there are no phones. 
Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye and watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. (laughs) And even now, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away, a state flower perhaps, the address of an uncle, the capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue. It's not even lurking in some obscure corner of your spleen. (laughs) It has floated away down a dark mythological river whose name begins with an L, as far as you can remember, (laughs) well on your own way to oblivion where where you will join those who have even forgotten how to swim and how to ride a bicycle. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a famous battle in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. My mother, um, my sister and I were uh, very involved in looking after both of my parents as they uh, aged and in the, in the time leading up to their deaths. They, they died just 10 weeks apart and they were both almost 92 and they'd been together for 70 years. I mean, that's a long time just to breathe, <laughs> let alone stay married to someone. My mother had a lot of uh, decline in her mental abilities, kind of dementia that uh, was pretty, pretty strong, uh, pretty severe towards the end. And there was a lot of confusion in the mind and the heart uh, with her. And it was, it was very painful, very, very difficult for my father, especially. And short-term memory wasn't there. And she and I would have the same conversation over and over. And sometimes I think, well, you know, this could be, this could be something that's in store for me. I, I take after my mother in a lot of ways. And, you know, I don't know. These things maybe are hereditary. I'm not sure about that. But it could be I'm heading in that direction. Every once in a while on, on a bad day, it seems quite likely. <laughs> maybe come much earlier for me. And there's a lot of fear about this, isn't it? You know, I think the, the fear of diminished mental capacities is, is far greater for most of us than, than fear of the aging body. There was a, a much, a very beloved uh, monk that I know some of you have, have uh, heard of and, and maybe some of you were lucky enough to meet. His name was Maha Gosananda. He's a Cambodian monk, and he was uh, called the Sangha Raja, the, the uh, king of the Sangha, the, sort of the, the head um, in a kind of, um, seen as the head of the, the Sangha in Cambodia, seen as the sort of heart uh, and soul of the Cambodian Buddhist uh, community. And he was, he was a very... Um, very active uh, in in peace movement, he uh, he organized and led over many years these marches through uh, Cambodia in areas where there were a lot of landmines still in the ground, uh, bringing attention to these horrible devices. And um, he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for at least four times, 
should have won at least four times in my opinion. Tireless um, in his uh, good works in so many ways. I, I know some of you, maybe many of you have seen down in the, the gratitude hut, there's a beautiful picture and it shows uh, Maha Gosananda and His Holiness the Dalai Lama and they're bent over almost, you know, flat to the ground. Each one is trying to get lower to show the greater respect to the other. They held each other in such high esteem. He uh, ended his life in uh, Massachusetts. He wound up living at a small Cambodian temple, not far from the Insight Meditation Society where I've spent a lot of time in different capacities over the years. And and I used to go and visit him once in a while. Just go to, to pay respects. And it wasn't like, we didn't have a close friendship or anything, but, but I'd met him once when he came by the center and, and I knew he was there and I just, I would go by with some, not a lot. I went by a, a number of times to see him and just to pay respects. And um, one of the last times, it might have been the last time I saw him, he had uh, begun to really suffer from uh, decline in his mental capacities, Alzheimer's disease, perhaps. And uh, things had really diminished in that, that aspect. And this uh, last time, or one of the last times I saw him, I went there and uh, met one of the, the other monks, and they said, um, Bhante is in his room. You can go see him there. And so I went into his room, you know, to pay respects. And he, he just, his face just lit up when he saw me as though I were this long lost friend that he hadn't seen. And he did not know me in a personal way. And he started handing me things, bars of soap and, and uh, packages of crackers and things that were on the shelves in his room. He started giving me presents there and this, this beaming smile. And there was this... Um, when I think of it, it brings a lot of emotion for me. There's just this, um, the power of his metta filled the room. It was like just being bathed in love and light to be around him. And it was very simple, almost in a way childlike, not childish. Very simple. He didn't speak. I don't think he was speaking anymore by then. But just to be with him was a huge gift. I read once a story. This is about a great Indian teacher, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, a very loved Indian saint. He lived and taught in Mumbai and until he was quite elderly, way up into his 80s. And when he was getting old, someone said, Maharaj, what's it like, what's it like to be an old yogi? And he said, Oh, I just watch senility come in. I just see the memory decompose on an almost daily basis. And he just roared with laughter, was the description. <laughs> and I think sometimes when I think about that story, or I remember Mahagosananda, and I think maybe uh, Maharaj was pointing to some capacity, something larger than the, the thinking mind, than what we think of as the brain, those kinds of 
intellectual capacities, something that is larger and has the capacity to observe the whole thing beyond the thinking mind. And even as those cognitive abilities may begin to decline, to deteriorate. And I think maybe we've all had some sense of this this as a possibility in our meditation when we are aware of the arising and passing of a thought or other kinds of mental activities. We can see that. We can be mindful of that. We can see uh, the arising and passing of consciousness itself. What is it that it can be aware in that way? What is it that can see the arising and passing of consciousness? And so I think there's an aspect of awareness that we start to touch into in our practice that we get a taste of in these moments that points to something that is beyond larger, deeper, whatever kind of word you might want to use there than the thinking mind. Something that's more reliable than that, say a kind of more reliable uh, refuge, capacity of mind, of awareness. I think we connect with this. We start to taste this maybe uh, more and more intimately. This aspect of awareness that's not affected by what's known. As Carol was saying so beautifully, it doesn't matter. It can know anything. Perhaps even know the decline of the mind, some aspects of it. We can liken this awareness, all kinds of images, sometimes open sky or space where things can appear and disappear and it's not changed by that. It remains unaffected. Maybe aging, illness, death, decline of the mind, all of this. Maybe this can arise and pass away, all of this, everything can come. And there's an aspect of awareness that's not cannot be perturbed by any of that. Not disturbed, not changed. So I'll end this evening with a short quotation. This is from uh, a Thai forest monk named Ajahn Fuang Jyotiko. This is from a book called Awareness Itself. You have to keep being observant of the mind Awareness itself is not the case that the mind isn't aware, you know. Its basic nature is awareness. Just look at it. It's aware of everything. Aware, but perhaps it can't yet let go of its perceptions, of the conventions it holds to be true. So you just have to focus your investigation on in. Simply keep at it. If you're persistent like this without letting up, Your doubts will gradually fade away, fade away, and eventually you'll reach your true refuge within you, the basic awareness that sees clearly through everything. This is the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha appearing within you as your ultimate refuge. It's sovereign in and of itself. It knows clearly and truly all around. That's the true refuge within.
So we can have a couple minutes of sitting quietly together. Let these words uh, float away into the evening. Thank you for your kind attention and for your practice today. And there's time for walking and the chanting at 9 o'clock. And it's a really a sweet way to end the day, so please be welcome to come for the last sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.